Baseball babies, it's the smartest man in the world, Proopcast, this time coming to you live from the Negro League Museum in Kansas City, Missouri, and the 2018 Hall of Game Awards induction ceremony. This year's class was illustrious. Historical hurler Jim Mudcat Grant, exciting leadoff man Kenny Lofton, terrifying pitcher J.R. Richard, tremendous slugger Dick Allen, and immortal first baseman Eddie Murray. Bob Kendrick, the president of the Negro League Museum, asked me to host it, and it was my honor to do so. The Negro League Museum is an institution dedicated to preserving the work of the people of the Negro Leagues, and as a reminder that segregation is a terrible blight on America. Now, let's enjoy the ceremony and these fine athletes with special surprise appearance by the Wizard of Oz, Ozzie Smith, right now. It gives me great pleasure to introduce a guy who I certainly call my friend. I met him several years ago, and I told him earlier today he, he came in and hosted the event last year, and I guess we didn't scare him too bad because he came back again to host it this year. And he is very funny. You've seen him on the hit TV series, Whose Line Is It Anyway? Comedian, actor, extremely intelligent, so y'all got to stay with him now. Stay with him, and, and please welcome to the stage your MC, your host, Mr. Greg Proops. Thank you, Bob. Thank you, Bob. One more time for the band, ladies and gentlemen. They bad, ain't they? It's two times in a performer's career when he plays at the Negro Hall of Game induction ceremonies. Once on the way up, and once again on the way down. It's nice to be back. <laughs> I was here last year at Bob's invitation, and I really appreciate it. Um, this is a gig where if you promise not to ask for any money, they'll have you back every year. I came here for the barbecue. Uh, we had a magnificent luncheon today, and I can't believe it all y'all eat here in Missouri. Uh, uh, you know, coleslaw and uh, white bread, barbecue and ribs, brisket, french fries. If I were lived here, I'd weigh like 500 pounds, like some of all y'all. Now, the point is this. I'm a San Francisco Giants fan, so Kansas City has a lot of beautiful memories for me. I know, I know. I knew you were going to act that way. Wait till we get to the governor jokes. So, the governor couldn't be here tonight because he's tied up. But the point is, that's all right, he's resigned to it. What beautiful weather uh, today here in Kansas City. Just slightly hotter than the planet Mercury. <laughs> Fantastic weather to wear a suit. I saw a dog explode on 17th. <laughs> I am originally from San Carlos, California, which is the whitest place on the face of the earth. Home of the Plain Yogurt Festival. <laughs> Take out the fruit. The powerful taste is burning our tongues. We hate that spicy ethnic fare. Where one direction is found in the hip-hop section. I'll wait. 
San Carlos was so white, our Catholic school was called St. Charles. San Carlos means St. Charles, y'all. The town fathers were like, it's a little bit Mexican, don't you think? I never understand this whole thing about Mexico. I'm from California. We've been Mexico for 500 years. It's worked out pretty well. We have taco trucks on every corner. It's awesome. <laughs> uh, Bobby Bonds uh, came to San Carlos when I was a child and moved there with his son, Barry. And they were the black neighborhood in my town. And uh, my dad took me to my first baseball game at Candlestick Park uh, in 1967. And I saw Willie Mays, and Willie McCovey, Juan Marichal, Tita Fuentes, and then, of course, later, Bobby Bonds, Jim Ray Hart uh, for Dick Allen. Jim Ray Hart uh, played third that day. And uh, I said to him, my father said to me at one point, um, Willie Mays was in the Negro Leagues. And I was like, what's the Negro Leagues? And he was like, well, it was a separate league. And I'm like, why was it separate? And he's like, well, all right. <laughs> so I studied and I found out. And uh, eventually it, it led me here, uh, where I met Bob, uh, and we talked and talked all night about baseball. And uh, this magnificent museum that you have here at the cultural hub of Kansas City, uh, where music and art and letters and literature and baseball all met uh, in a vibrant splash of astounding uh, display of um, self-realization and creativity here. Um, there's no other museum like this. You can go to the Smithsonian and there isn't going to be a jazz band. Uh, yeah, you can go to the Library of Congress, but they're not gonna serve you barbecue. So it is unbelievably awesome uh, for me to be here and uh, take part in this. Um, it's the thing that makes my heart sing more than any other event I get to do. And I'll wrap it up here. But I wanted to say a couple of things. Um, I grew up watching all of these players. Uh, Dick Allen used to punish the Giants on a regular basis when I was a child. And then later the Oakland Athletics. And then later his time with the Oakland Athletics, which I'm sure was marvelous. Anyone who knew Charlie Finley knew that he was a person sometimes. And <laughs> relax, everybody. It'll be over soon. I went to a baseball game on April 18th, 1990 with my wife and we stopped and bought sandwiches and we brought them into the ballpark. You could do that then. And uh, Eddie Murray was playing for the Dodgers and he hit two home runs, one in the third inning um, from the right-hand side and one in the seventh inning from the left-hand side and ruined my afternoon uh, because he was a magnificent player. Uh, Mudcat Grant, I saw pitch for the Oakland Athletics when I was a child. And he's also an astounding historian, and if you've never read his book, Black Aces, I assure you, it is uh, um, immensely worth it. Uh, an informative and vibrant read about not only the Negro League pitchers, uh, but all of the Black Aces who had won 20 games in the major leagues. And speaking of which, J.R. Richard, who was um, one of the most devastating pitchers ever to take the mound, absolutely frightening, and beat the Giants like a drum on a regular basis uh, all through my teenage years. And lastly, uh, Kenny Lofton, because Kenny Lofton famously played for, of course, Cleveland and Atlanta and lots of other teams, um, but he also played for the 2002 Giants. Uh, we got him late in the air, and he had the game-winning hit uh, that won the pennant for us that sent us to our, tech, uh, our second pennant uh, ever in San, third pennant ever in San Francisco. And for that, I shall always love him. And the sight of Barry Bonds picking him up like he weighed four pounds and throwing him over his shoulder. Uh, 
it's not hard to put it in context, what's happening here at the Negro League Museum and what's going on. It's not lost on us, what's going on in our current era. The fortitude, resilience, bravery, resolve, humor, and determination uh, displayed by the thousands of people that took part in the Negro Leagues. And I'd like to mention a, a few athletes uh, that uh, I think have inspired all of us. Satchel Paige, Rube Foster, Chet Brewer, Jackie Robinson, Larry Derby, Peanut Johnson, Tony Stone, Connie Morgan, Bill Russell, Arthur Ashe, Effa Manley, Wyoming Atias, Wilma Rudolph, Althea Gibson, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Doc Ellis, Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf, you may remember from the NBA from several years ago, John Carlos and Tommy Smith, Venus and Serena Williams, Jim Dent, Colin Kaepernick, Eric Reed, LeBron James, Kevin Durant, Mudcat Grant, Jesse Owens, Jack Johnson, Joe Lewis, and Muhammad Ali. Their names will not be forgotten, and uh, it helps us understand uh, that this continues on and on. Now, let's get on to the inductees of tonight's show. First of all, the first four classes uh, of the uh, uh, Hall of Game here uh, were uh, unbelievable, and I'm going to name them all for you now. In 2014, the class was uh, Lou Brock, Joe Morgan, Dave Winfield, and Roberto Clemente. Uh, 2015, the Immortals Ricky Henderson, Ferguson Jenkins, Ozzie Smith, and uh, Louis Tiant. In 2016, Orlando Cepeda, Andre Dawson, Tony Oliva, and Tim Raines. Last year, Al Oliver, who just finished telling me how great he was. <laughs> Tony Perez, Lee Smith, and Maury Wells. And now, in honor of the game's fifth anniversary, five new names added to the list, the class of 2018. Five legends who brought the Negro League style of play to Major League Baseball. The passion, determination, flair, and skill. First up is Mr. Kenny Lofton. In 1992, Kenny Lofton stole 66 bases for the Cleveland Indians, breaking the all-time record for an American League rookie. Played for 11 teams in a 17-year career. Spent most of his time, notably with the Indians, helping the organization win six division titles. He had six All-Star appearances and four Gold Glove awards. Led the AL in stolen bases five times. Eleven postseason appearances. Two World Series, including with the Giants. Earning a trip to the Fall Classic in 95 with the Indians and in 2002 with the Giants. Hitting leadoff here tonight, please welcome one of the greatest base runners in baseball history, Mr. Kenny Lofton. <laughs> Good. There's water behind the bush there. They've hidden it. All right, I see that. If you need that. All right. Hi. Hi. All right. Yeah, right? Hey, Kenny Lofton, y'all. Uh, we wanted to start off with a, a, a kind of a basic question for you. What's the secret to being such an awesome base stealer? Um, I think for me, the, the secret is being aggressive. Mm -hmm. I think that's the main thing is understanding that you know, once you figure out what the pitcher is doing to go to home or go to, you know, to go to first base, once you figure that out, it's all about being aggressive. You mean like, well, first of all, knowing what the pitcher's going to throw and when to take the lead, but going from first to third or scoring on a single to right from second base or single to left, because that's how you do all those things. Um, your destruction of the Mariners in 1995, 
uh, in that one playoff game, you went to first, you stole second. Would you go to third on an error? No, it was a pass ball. Pass ball. Right? Randy yeah. Johnson was hanging around behind, wasn't backing up third. Hanging around. And once you know, I always tell myself, you go out there and you be aggressive. And you always think going to extra base. And whatever, whatever you see in front of you, if you can see something that's not right or whatever you can see, since you're going aggressive, I just kept going. And that's what I had. I saw um, Dan Wilson was standing there pouting because of the pass <laughs> ball. And Randy Johnson had his head down. And I just, since I was aggressive going to third base, I already had my momentum going forward. And that little, that little bit of him sitting there pouting, when you pot on me, a lot of bad things can happen. So, um, and once I saw it, I just kept going. Well, you said at the luncheon today, if, uh, if someone told you you couldn't do something, that motivated you to do it. I mean, that was my motivation always. People always say what you can't do. If you're going to tell me I can't do something, I know I can do it, I'm going to say I can. And I'm going to go out there and do it. And that's what I pretty much did my whole career. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, Negro Leagues were filled with uh, lots of base runners, um, like Sam the Jet Jethro. And uh, he led the Negro Leagues in stolen bases three times and then a couple times with the Braves. Um, how does it feel to know you follow in the footsteps of pioneers like the Jet? Well, for me, I just felt like if I just go out there and, and do what I know what I can do, you look at guys before you and know it has been done. So if I feel like things have been done, I try to look at it, feed from it, and figure out what I can do better to go forward. And you look at, you know, the, I tried it, but it didn't work. I tried to lay in my bed with the light on, jump on and turn the light off, and get back in the bed <laughs> like Coop Papa Bell, but it didn't work. So I guess I'm not as fast as Coop Papa Bell, but I tried it and it didn't work. <laughs> yeah, no one's as fast as Cool Papa Bell. Uh, was there any catchers that you felt you couldn't run on? No. I just felt like, because again, I'm gonna say no, and the reason why, I mean, I played with, uh, it was uh, Charles Johnson and uh, Pudge Rodriguez, but the thing about it is you don't steal off the catcher. You steal off the pitcher. So, uh, you know, you find a guy who has certain kind of move, like a Latroy Hawkins or something like that. Uh -huh. um, no, <laughs> no, you find, you find something that they do to go home. So once you find that, you always tell yourself, oh, the catcher is tough behind the plate. He's like 1.3 to the plate. I'm like, that's okay. I'm stealing off the pitcher and not the catcher. So it's not really the big deal of the catcher. The catcher, if he always told Pudge, you're going to have to throw the ball right by the base because if the, if the infielder have to go high or low, you can forget it. Right. Yeah. And you slid every which way, the hook slide, the hand slide? Well, I, well, I, I like to slide have her first, head first yeah. a lot because I feel like I know what's going on. I mean, sometimes the tag come down and you can swoop around the tag, but when you got your foot down, it's just one way. Right. Uh, what do you think about the game today and how people are stealing a little more? And yeah, stealing a little less. Mm. Um, um, I think, you know, the game, they're all about the, in this game and age, this launch angle, analytics, trying to figure out, you know, everyone, everyone is trying to hit the home run. And I always said the game, the game is not about home run. And I always say we're here in Kansas City, but I was very proud of the Kansas City Royals to win the World Series because of the small ball. They didn't have, you know, I just, you know, so that was one of the World Series that, you know, since I've played that I actually, other than the Cleveland Series, the Kansas Series Series, just to watch because of how they played the game. So it's all about small ball, and that small ball is gone. It's all about launch angle. Guy can hit 10 home runs, or he can hit 30 home runs and hit 220, and he's considered an all-star. Come on, that's not the way the game is supposed to be played. Wow. Well, I, I agree. Uh, however, uh you hit a devastating home run when you were on the Giants. 
against St. Louis Cardinals. Oh, that one, yeah. Um, <laughs> well, I guess you want me to tell that story, huh? Well, if you would. <laughs> well, you know, the show's we for me now, basically. Yeah. Well, yes. we, we was playing against St. Louis, and the game before was in the playoffs, and, and um, Pujols hit a home run, and he just, what we call pimping around the bases. He hit it and just kind of washed it and stared it. And Dusty Baker came in, and he said the next game, whoever hit a home run, the first guy hit a home run, I want you to pimp it around the bases, do whatever you got to do. <laughs> Happened to be the third and then top of the third, I come to the plate. And a guy threw a fastball middle in and I hit it a country mile up here and I had to pimp it. But I enjoyed that because I really wanted to do it. So I hit the home run and all of a sudden I did my little skip, my little pimp and my little look and threw the bat. And the next, you know, next to bat, the fifth inning, I got thrown at and the bench is cleared. So, but, but it was just, again, it was that home run and it just happened to be me, I guess, Sign said, they'll let Kenny do it because he know how to pimp it. And that's what I did. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah, you did, man. Uh, you, uh, you played with um, Eddie Murray uh, with the Indians for a couple seasons, including uh, the 95 Indians, which was a, a pretty wild team. Yeah. A, a astoundingly talented team. Um, what, you had about six, I think six starters that hit 300 on that team? It was a lot. I mean, I think it was close to, I think, I think we only had... Maybe one or two guys didn't hit 300, but right. the rest were 290. Uh, we had a close to over a 290 average, I believe. Well, what do, you, what do you remember about that 95 season? Because, golly, the Clevelands hadn't been in the series since, what, 54? Yeah, and then, yeah, recently. But, yeah, yeah um, before then, it was just a team. We just had a, a, a team of – we had a little swagger about us. Mm. And people didn't really like that. But um, we just had some guys, you know, in between the lines, we were gamers – you know, out, off the field in the in the clubhouse, we were just a madhouse. It was music going, guys wrestling, fighting, going all kind of stuff. But once the game started, it was it was focused, and we had a team that we just felt like we couldn't lose. And I think that's the attitude that we took. And they came in, and other teams come in and say, "Man, that we always call that uh, that tenth man is the crowd." Our crowd just was going crazy that whole that whole year and that whole time and we just we just played like we had this edge we had a chip on our shoulder and every player had a chip even a little Asamaka well not little but Asamaka was he didn't say too many words but he ended up getting the chip on his shoulder I'm like wow Aussie Aussie got a chip but it was just one of those things that everyone just felt it and we just fed off each other oh it's an extraordinary team Manuel Ramirez and Albert Bell and Eddie Omar Murray, it was uh, Omar. I mean, it was uh, Dennis Martinez, or Hershiser, oh, yeah. um, uh, Jose Mesa, Tome, Sandy Alomar, Albert. It was, we had a squad, pretty much. Like an all-star team. Yeah. Uh, so Eddie Murray was on that team. Yes. Oh, uh, Eddie. Yeah. And uh, hit a home run in the World Series. Uh, do you have any stories about Eddie from that team? Ooh, well, <laughs> a few of them, but... <laughs> Um, Why don't you choose the most amusing one, Kenny? Well, well, well no, because, again, the, well, well, the good thing about Eddie, Eddie was a, a, a teacher of the game. He saw things on the field, he'll pull you aside, and he'll say, hey, this ain't why you're supposed to be played. This is the way you're supposed to do it. So one time, um, I still remember this, we was, the ball was hit to the outfit in the gap, and I think it was Carlos, and I, was, I think it was either, I think it was Omar was on base, he was coming on the score, and usually you have 
the guy um, on deck is kind of helping the guy where to slide and come in, go right or go left. And Albert's sitting there thinking about his, you know, whatever he was thinking about. And he didn't help the guy slide and the guy almost got hurt. Eddie lit to Albert. Eddie let him know that, dude, you know, you need to go out there. And when the guy's coming in, you go and help him out, slide right or left. And Albert, Eddie said, I'm not, I'm talking to you or whatever. And Eddie just kind of, not many people lit into, lit into Albert, but Eddie was one of them. So, and he let him know because you got to play the game the right way. And he don't care who you were. If you didn't play the game the way it's supposed to be played, Eddie was going to say, you know, Eddie was going to say something to you. Bottom line. Right. That's astounding. Yeah. Yeah, you don't really want to face down Albert Bell that much. Well, but Eddie did. <laughs> did he give you any tips? Oh, I, I, you know what? I just looked at Albert and just told him, you know, well, I ain't going to say what I told him half the time. But, but Albert was a different player, but he was a gamer. I'll give you that. Absolutely. No, did, I mean, did gamer. Eddie give you any tips when you? Um, no, oh, Eddie. Um... <laughs> <laughs> Yo, Eddie told me I do the hook slide. But I think Eddie, Eddie always taught us to look at the pictures, read the pictures, and there's a, lot, there's a lot you can know about just watching. If you don't sit there in the dugout, you sit in the dugout eating seeds, doing stuff, looking in the stands, Eddie was not up to that. He basically said you, need, you can learn a lot by sitting there just watching the game. Yeah. And he's always told us, look at this little thing that's going on. It's going to help you later on down the, down the game or another game here or there, but it worked out. Right. So how do you feel about being inducted into the Hall of Game tonight? I feel great again. I just feel like when I got the call, I felt like now I'm being recognized for the way I played the game. You know, and they always say I played, the guys, you know, always said that uh, Buck O'Neill said, Kenny, you played the game like old Negro League players. Because I just went out there and just hustled. I played hard and I did what I had to do in order to get the job done. So um, that's, that's pretty much what it's all about is just how the game is being played the right way. Well, we couldn't be more excited to have you here. You played the game with. Unbelievable flair. Ladies and gentlemen, the immortal Kenny Lofton. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, Kenny Lofton, y'all. Uh, our next player is, uh, well, someone... Just an astounding player. I don't think anyone raked the ball harder uh, during a period in the baseball when um, batting averages were down, power was down, and uh, this man uh, stood tall. Uh, they've got here one of the most dynamic players of the 60s and early 70s. He was Rookie of the Year in 1964 with an astonishing rookie year for the Philadelphia Phillies. Uh, led the American League in home runs, led the National League in slugging percentage, and also... Uh, Seven All-Star appearances and the 1972 MVP for the White Sox, basically saving the White Sox franchise and keeping them from moving. The first player to hit two inside-the-park home runs in a single game. Uh, he's in the Philadelphia Baseball Wall of Fame at Citizens, uh, Citizens Bank Park. Uh, he got there in 1994. Please welcome one of the great players in Major League Baseball history, Dick Allen. Kenny, you leave your phone? It was already there. Well, look, we got us a phone, Dick. Is that your phone? Yeah, it's my phone. All right, I'll give you a phone. Yeah, when you were soloing. 
Thank you, man. <laughs> That's all right. Dick tried to steal my pen at dinner, so. Mr. Allen. Yeah. Yeah. It's good to see you here. Good to see you, too. You've got the microphone yeah. there. Is it oh. hiding over oh, there? Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Right? No, you want to use that. It's going to make it easier for everyone to hear you. Can you hear me now? I'm going to open a bottle of delicious Hy-Vee spring water in case anyone's interested. The spring water that made Missouri famous. Um, Dick, let's talk a little bit about when you were a little kid uh, and Wampum PA and uh, Jackie Robinson got in the big leagues. What do you remember uh, about that time? I remember... Uh, you have to understand, my mother's name was Ira. And in baseball, that stands for earn run average. But she was also the best hitter I've ever seen. <laughs> oh, I'm serious. It's uh, Babe Ruth, Hank Aaron, Willie Mays. But when you got wrong around that farm at home as kids, uh, I'm from a small family of 10. <laughs> and, well, I am. <laughs> and when you got wrong, uh, she didn't mind going get that switch. And every time she swung it, she didn't miss. <laughs> Best hitter I've ever seen. <laughs> oh, don't laugh. I'm serious about it. She didn't miss. I averaged four a day. <laughs> mm. It's a wonder I have any hind parts. <laughs> well, no, all your brothers were athletes as well. Your whole family's athletic. Oh. Yes. Uh-huh. Did your brother Corey also play? The right. Men? Oh, you you, played played the you from Wampum? No, I just read your book. Oh yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I, I thought Kenny was the only Indian, but that's what it is. Wampum, Wampum <laughs> Indian. But uh, yes, we did. Uh, all five of us. Uh, all five of us played uh, athletics and. All five, uh, all state, and then there was me. But uh, mother cared not about, uh, she didn't care much about athletics. She'd bring me some grades home. As a matter of fact, we were laughing. I was talking with Angela this morning. She's a farm girl, too. We uh, played all three sports, football, baseball, basketball, just like JR. And the rest of us, we all did. But. Uh, she refused to wash any of those sports clothes when you bought them home. She took in washing and, <laughs> washing and cleaning and things for the doctors and all, but would not wash none of those. Don't you bring those things here, that old baseball uniform. <laughs> don't, you, don't you bring that football uniform here. How about those old jock straps? You can, <laughs> you can still smell the clubhouse. Maybe that's why she refused to wash those clothes. <laughs> but we couldn't, bring, we couldn't bring any of our sports. We couldn't bring, don't laugh. <laughs> Come on, Greg, it's for real. I'm with your mother on that I one. I know this, yep. <laughs> I love you, but I can't. Um, the, uh, now, speaking of the Negro Leagues, you talk about when they were scouting you, uh, Judy Johnson came to your yes. house. Yes, as a matter of fact, I was in the 10, 58, 59. John Ogden signed me. As a matter of fact, he also signed uh, Hank Aaron. Mm-hmm. 
he signed the, he missed Willie Mays by $400. They wouldn't let him, they wouldn't let him sign him for 400. He missed Ernie Banks, my idol, $200. So he had to settle for me. <laughs> now you got a giant bonus though. You might've got the largest bonus. So they was. said, but I didn't get a chance to count any of it. I was <laughs> now was your mother doing the agenting for you then? My oldest brother. Your older brother? My oldest brother, Coy. Uh-huh. Mm -hmm. But so Judy Johnson came to your house to try to recruit you? Uh, he came there with John Ogden. Uh, they couldn't get in the door. They wanted to play basketball, football, baseball, just like the rest of us, like J.R. said. And uh, of course, Kenny, he could probably play all three and, and be a, quite a challenge to the uh, Williams sisters. You probably you play tennis too, Kenny. <laughs> He could have done that too. Probably if he wanted to now, he probably could have. But, uh, we played them all. Yeah, we, yeah, we, played, the, we played them all. <laughs> now, you're, I think you're the first black player to play professional ball in the st state of Arkansas? Little Rock, Arkansas. Yeah. Right. As a matter of fact, they, they integrated baseball in 19, uh, integrated high school in 1957. Mm -hmm. They changed their mind in 63, going to integrate baseball. And at the time, uh, I was, what, uh, 19, Camp Clearwater. Uh, at Camp at Clearwater, led the Grapefruit League home runs, but I guess about 15, they decided they were going to keep me. Changed their mind the last day. Sent me to Little Rock, Arkansas by myself. No roommate. Uh, death threats. So this is why I, I'm mesmerized by what I've seen today with Bobby Hendricks doing a tremendous job of... of Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, of uh, going off this beautiful museum here that we do have here in Kansas City. I'm beginning to recognize a lot of a lot of people here that are involved, and uh, this is terrific, uh, a terrific thing. Bobby Hendrick does a terrific job of exploiting uh, uh, your your museum here, and quite proudly to say I'm proud to be part of it uh, right now. I really am. But to answer your question, if I can remember that. Uh, <laughs> I remember being in Little Rock, Arkansas, death threats every day. Scared little kid, 19, we're from Pennsylvania. Heard about segregation, but never was really in it. You had to read about it in comic book, mm -hmm. I mean, in magazines and things, and all of a sudden woke up one morning, here you are, you're in it. And uh, I recall one day, I tell the story quite a few times, to be serious. With the death threats, day after day after day, I uh, called my mom on that phone. Mom, I want to come home. <laughs> I want to come home. And she said to me, you listen, put that phone to your ear, boy. Do you hear me? You put that phone to your ear. Now, God gave you to me and I am your mother. You get home to me if you didn't, but God, if you don't, 
but God give you a talent and a place to show it. And if you don't, you're not being disobedient to me, you're being disobedient to God. I went home and cried like a baby. I laid across that bed and cried like a baby. But somehow or another, I, uh, <laughs> I come to grips with uh, understanding what B.B. King was talking about. He wrote a song at that time that said, nobody loves you but your mama, and she might be lying too. <laughs> and, uh, I come to grips with it, you understand? <laughs> no, don't laugh. True story. True story. <laughs> you... But I was listening to Eddie Murray dictate with the Dodgers. He took me to the ballpark every day. Of course, we always did with your brothers. And no, you hit right and left hand. And so he pitched to me every day from the, from the left. I always did wear glasses. Uh, good to see you with yours on. He, uh, I can see all the better. Time we have. I could see better from the left uh -huh. side. You're right. So I, I was my side. I liked to swing on that side. What turned me around, but by being with Philly, Johnny Callison was there. Mm -hmm. That left uh, Tony Taylor leading off right-handed. Tony Gonzalez hitting second, left-handed. Johnny Callison, left-handed. According to the pitcher, if I turn around, switch it, then that make me left-handed. Wes Covington, left-handed. Johnny Briggs, left-handed. We were all left-handed. I know Kenny would like it. He swung from that side, but. That turned me around. He said to me, Gene Mock said to me one day, if I catch you on the other side of that plate, I'm hitting the ball out of the ballpark. <laughs> I catch you on the other side of that ball, uh, other side of that batter's box, it's gonna cost you $500. You hear me? What the hell do you wanna do? Hit, five, uh, hit 400? Well, yeah. <laughs> That's what turned me around and I, I stayed on that, that side. But uh, I've had a lot of fun in this game, but uh, I do have some very special moments, but a lot of them do come from home of what I have learned in, mm. in the way of life. And a lot of that come from Buck O'Neill, Buck Leonard, Ray Dandridge, Nap Gully, Double Duty. I got to meet a lot of them. There were only 47. I got to lead, meet a lot of them. I guess the word got around, hey, you have to go see this kid. Uh, as I said, I, I remember getting a letter from Monty Irwin one time uh, mentioning something to be about a Hall of Fame. I mentioned to him, no, I'm not worthy, thinking of all these names, they're legends. And uh, I'm not worthy, couldn't carry these guys' shoes. But now here I am to be mentioned in the same breath and especially to be the class of 2018, Kenny Lofton, Eddie Murray. Jeez, I, am I forgetting it? J.R. and Mudcat. Oh, jeez, you see, how could I do that? J.R. and Mudcat, they raised me. He caused me, a, JR caused me a World Series ring. <laughs> well, he did, I was with the Dodgers, right? We did the uh, Philly, 1964. We missed the pennant by one game, the last day of the season. 
I spent uh, 10 years in Philly. Well, they loved it. They just loved me there. Uh, I wore a helmet every day. <laughs> they loved me. They sent me to St. Louis. We lost the pennant the last day of the season. One game. I'm very fond of the Dodger uniform of all that I've ever put on because of Jaggy. They footprints that large. I really wish we learned to follow them through our, our youth, our, our mothers. Raise those children. Get them to the ballpark. Get them to school. Get them to learn to play that game that Jackie made us large for them. I'm afraid we're letting it go away to football. We always hear that. Uh, this is my way out of the ghetto. He's six, seven years old. She wants him to play football, but as we mentioned a little earlier this afternoon, if he's not six foot five or better, they're not looking at him in the NBA. They're only going to take 12. Football, hell, you don't even get to know your own teammate. I got 52 of them in the room, and if you don't put that unit, you know, <laughs> but baseball, everybody gets an opportunity, and that's all it was here to Negro League. Everybody well, thank gets you so regardless much. of what size, how short, how tall, how we, they go from six foot nine, Frank Howard, six foot ten, six foot eleven, down to. Four foot eleven. If you can play, you can play. Jake Allen can play, ladies and gentlemen. Congratulations on going in. Thank you. Thanks so much. And I still like that suit. <laughs> Dick Allen. Uh, yeah. Um, Mudcat Grant uh, is our next inductee. Um, and sadly, uh, he can't be with us here tonight. Uh, I'm going to read a couple of his credits, and then we're going to bring Bob Kendrick out to talk about Mudcat a little bit. Um, Mudcat was a historic figure in the game of baseball. The first black pitcher to win 20 games in the American League. The first black pitcher to win a World Series game in the American League. I would also add, he saved 20 games uh, in the American League. Um, he pitched in 571 games, lifetime record of 145 and 119, two All-Star games, Sporting News Pitcher of the Year in 65. He went 21-7 and for the Twins and hit a three-run homer to win Game 6 for the Twins so they could go to Game 7 off Claude Osteen. Um, he retired and dedicated himself to studying and promoting black people in baseball, releasing the book The Black Aces, Baseball's Only Black 20-Game Winners, in 2006. He was at the White House with George W. Bush in 2007, and a great friend, supporter, and ambassador of Negro League Baseball his entire life. Unfortunately, he can't be here, but let's bring Bob Kendrick up to talk about him a little bit. Where are you, Bob? They wanted us to stand for this, but why don't you just sit for a second and we'll, we'll talk about Jim Grant. Now, last year he was here, and awesomely at the end of the show, um, he sang Jimmy Reed's Baby What You Want Me To Do from the audience, yeah. uh, which was pretty groovy. We had two singers here tonight. I didn't ask Dick to sing. Uh, Richie Allen and the Ebonistics. The Ebonistics. The Ebonistics. 
But before, before I, I want to make sure I also acknowledge another great major league player because he was Muttcat's catcher. And that's the great Joe Askew. Joe Askew. The great Joe Askew, my Cubano friend. And one of, one of my favorite Muttcat stories involved those two jokers. And so Muttcat tells a wonderful story. He had been getting squeezed by this umpire. You know, that little outside pitch, he wasn't giving him to him, having trouble with this umpire all the time. And so Mudcat and Joe decide to get together and they gonna teach this umpire a lesson. So I guess in Cleveland they had the horses and you know when the horses eat, they drop a little something. And so Mudcat decides that he's gonna take, get Joe to spread a little of that little, that horse excrement on the back of his catcher's mask. And so when the, <laughs> when the umpire bent down, and <laughs> the umpire was like, what's wrong with this boy? And then Marquette said, all the calls, strike, strike. <laughs> strike. He said it was one of the quickest games they ever played. <laughs> Mudcat Grant and Joe Askew, what a combination. <laughs> wow. Uh, talk a little bit about uh, Mudcat. He, he is such a student of baseball and such a student of the Negro Leagues. His knowledge seems to be wildly comprehensive, you know? Well, see, he was just on the outside of playing in the Negro Leagues. He wanted to play. Mm -hmm. He wanted to play. He came to Buck and wanted to play here for Kansas City and the Monarchs. So he was just on the outside of the Negro Leagues, but he always had that great respect for those other African-American pioneers. And so as a student of the history of the game and as he got involved in the game and certainly made his mark. I mean, his 1965 season, one of the great seasons of all time. And, you know, he wins a game, 20 game plus winner with the Twins and hits a home run in the World Series to win the World Series yeah. as a pitcher. And so I think all of that meant a great deal to him. But I think the work that you're referring to as the author of The Black Aces, mm. and bringing that history to the forefront. Because you have to understand that African-American pitchers who were in the Negro Leagues didn't really get that same opportunity to transition. The two positions, pitching and really the shortstop position to us, pitching, shortstop, and catching, they really didn't get a fair shot. Uh, because I'll be frank, the catching position in the Negro Leagues was probably far superior. Yeah, when you look at a guy like Roy Campanella, and Roy Campanella was a good catch in the Negro Leagues. There were so many other catchers who were better than Roy Campanella, which is frightening to think that there were a lot of catchers better than Roy Campanella, including Josh Gibson and Biz Mackey and the great Ted Double Duty Radcliffe, who Dick Allen meant, who would inscribe on his chest protector, thou shalt not steal. You know, <laughs> and so, you know, when you had that, and, so and, Campanella won three Most Valuable Player awards. Campanella won three MVP awards, yeah. and there were a litany of catchers who were better than Roy Campanella, but that position was conceived, perceived to be a cerebral position, mm -hmm. so they didn't transition. The pitching position, the same thing. You know, the first African-American pitcher in the major leagues was not Satchel Paige, but Dan Bankhead. Yeah. And Dan Bankhead had electric stuff, but Dan Bankhead was from Alabama country boy, was scared to pitch inside. 
because he was afraid of what might happen if he hit a white hitter. And, and so he never was able to harness his control when he was in the major leagues because of that fear of pitching inside. So when you talk about these guys that Muttcat focuses on, it, it's very impressive what they were able to do. And, you know, I think he's so proud of that legacy of the African-American pitcher that did get their opportunities. Right, finally. And then yeah. now, you know, uh, it, well... That's what it's about, isn't it? Being recognized finally and being well, able to accomplish something. I think something. In, in the final equation, Greg, we all want to be remembered. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think the reason that we built that museum, I used to talk with Buck at length about this, was because he wanted all of those athletes, the 2,600 men and women who played in the Negro Leagues, to not be forgotten. And, and I think that is the role that we have, and, and Mudcat is a part of that, and all of these legendary ball players who are with us tonight are part of that legacy. They are the extension of that legacy, as again, the late great Buck O'Neill would say, they built the bridge across the chasm of prejudice, which allowed these athletes to transition and have an opportunity to become the wizard, or, or the great Dick Allen and J.R. and Mudcat, all those guys who got the opportunity because of the sacrifice that they laid down. And I tell people all the time, there's no and, if, buts about it. They don't play had it not been for the heroes of the Negro Leagues. And so, yeah, I think it's beautiful that Mudcat understands that and that he wanted to do something to kind of leave that legacy of greatness as it relates to the African-American pitcher in, in, in our game. Okay. Fantastic. I wish he could be here tonight, but we'll give him the award later. Yeah, yeah, we will. I'm looking forward to him. I talked to him yesterday. He, he was obviously devastated that he could not be here, and so, but he certainly extends his best wishes to all of those who are receiving this honor tonight, and, and we're looking forward to having him back in Kansas City. So, yeah, please send one up tonight, though, for our friend Mudcat Grant. Thanks, Bob. Uh, wow. Uh, it's, uh, our next uh, inductee was an extraordinary force uh, in the National League. Not only was he unbeatable, literally, in high school, um, he was a devastating pitcher who no one wanted to dig in against. He threw 300 strikeouts, over 300 strikeouts, two years in a row. Um, uh, let's see here, a franchise record for the Astros, 313 strikeouts in 1979, 18 games a winner between 76 and 79, an all-star game, and then um, a career-ending stroke in 1980. One of the all-time toughest pitchers. Um, his life in baseball and after baseball um, is filled with triumph and tragedy and one of the most inspiring sports stories of all time. He, too, has a book. Uh, that is an outstanding book called Still Throwing Heat, Strikeouts, The Streets, and A Second Chance. Uh, put your hands together for Astros great, James Rodney Richards. J.R. Richard. Yes, sir. Your grip. It's very powerful. <laughs> well, that's the rumor. <sighs> um, on the cover of your book, 
which is a fantastic read. Um, how many baseballs are you holding in your hand? It's only eight. Eight? Yes. Wow. That's a lot of baseballs. Consider, yes. <laughs> now, a couple guys uh, who won several MVPs, uh, Johnny Bench and Dale Murphy said, you were the toughest pitcher they ever faced. Um, what was your mentality when you were going out to face someone like Johnny Bench or Dale Murphy? Well, my mentality was the baddest line in the valley. And I was, had the mentality that you cannot beat me. I, you cannot beat me easily because I wasn't going down without a fight. I want to be the best and I, when I worked out, I worked out for 15 innings. I didn't work out for nine innings, I worked out for 15 innings. Because sometimes just being the best is not good enough. You really don't know how strong you are or how much you have in you until you are pushed. Yeah, well, you certainly had it in you. Um, I think batters are terrified of you. Some was. Did anybody hit you? No, I don't know of any of them here. <laughs> I know uh, I used to play the Dodgers and beat the Dodgers, and the Dodgers had a, had a disease, come up with a D called, disease called geroitis. And when, when they knew that I was going to pitch, some guys would literally come in the clubhouse about a couple hours early and get in the whirlpool and say they can't play today because something is hurting. And that's a, that's a Dodger team with Steve Garvey and Davey Lopes and... Ron Say. Ron Say. Uh, Dusty Baker and... Uh... Yeah, Reggie Smith, right? Yes. And they were afraid. Yes, still is. Some of them are today. <laughs> um, did that give you extra confidence, knowing that uh, guys were, you know, get J.R. Itis with the mere mention of your name? No, it didn't give me any confidence because I had enough confidence within myself. Mm -hmm. And because... Uh, See, my idea was, if you do it, do it to the best of your ability, as if you're doing it for God. See, the only thing, see, the thing you got to realize, God, Jesus died for us, and if you can't live for him, something is wrong. Um, let's talk a little bit about before you got to the majors, because by the time you were a senior, you were pretty much six foot eight and 220 pounds, and... Um, I don't think you gave up a run the entire season? In high school. In high school. A run? Yes. For the entire season? Yes, when I got to the pros, man was on first. I didn't even go to the stretch because I never had anyone on first base. See here, it says, in one game you hit four consecutive home runs and your team won 48 to nothing. Yes. We was playing a team called uh, Jasper High, Louisiana. Mm-hmm. And uh, just, just had it that day. <laughs> 48 runs is two weeks worth of runs. Yeah, we had quite a few that day. It was... Did it ever occur to you to let up? Never. <laughs> Even at 43 nothing? 
That's right. See, because I, I know the only reason, only way a man can ratchet your back is you got to, a man can't ratchet your back if you're standing up. A man can only ratchet your back if you have been over. And I wasn't that type of guy to be bent over to nobody because Jesus Christ died for me and, and ain't no man on this earth can equal to, to, to Jesus Christ. And I'm just a believer, and I got the can't have it. Don't want to offend anybody, but it is what it is. <laughs> and now, as great a pitcher as you were, and as literally unhittable as you were in high school, it was basketball, right? Yes. Now, how many teams scouted you? 200? How many offers you have? About 250. 250? Yeah, see, when I played basketball, they used to call me Yay Team. I walk in and they just, everybody just stood up and started clapping. <laughs> so what made you not want to go in the NBA? Or what, what were the reasons that well, you... Well, the first thing, bonus. At that time, country boy, and the money I got for bonus kind of eliminated the uh, idea of going to play pro ball. Mm -hmm. Of course, I talked to some of my coaches and some of the teachers, of course my father and, my, and the preacher and other people, and, which also helped me make, was, a, was a, a point of helping me make that decision to go baseball. And now I've, I went baseball, I'm so glad I did because I've seen some guys out there, like a Kevin Durant. Now how would you feel guarding Kevin Durant? He's seven feet tall. <laughs> it would not be fun. So was it that hard of a decision to make, or were you conflicted at all? No, it was not at all. After I made that decision, I wasn't, because my mentality would still be the best in the world. And, you, and, you, and I applied myself. See, because I realized this, most people do enough just to get by. They never do the best they can do. Mm -hmm. See? And no journey is too far if one finds what he seeks. So, like I said before, it's not what you're called, but it's what you answer to. Because I know this, in, Matthew, in uh, Genesis, the first chapter, 26th verse, God said, let's make man in our own image. So you know how special you are? And I also said this, if God made anything better than a woman, he kept it to himself. Now you keep on going on. I'm about to start taking up collection here in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's nice to be inspired, you know. I think this whole night is about inspiration. All of you are so inspiring, and you're amazingly inspiring. Uh, there's very few things that lift us right now that we, we have to look to uh, uh, for inspiration. Um, and I think it's fantastic. I think... I understand that, but I think part of the problem is people shouldn't look for other people to inspire them. God put enough in them to inspire themselves. And it's up to them. See, whatever you want in life, God has already put in you. If you can't get it out of you can't look and have someone else to decide what you are or what you want to be in life. If you haven't made that decision, are you willing to put down what it takes to get it, to come up? See, because I don't need you to pull, my, pull up my bootstraps. I can put my own bootstraps up. And the essence, the essence of a man 
is that when you get it, you need to get it, you need to give it to someone else. Because God did not just bless you for yourself. He blessed you for, so you can be a blessing to someone else. Try passing the plate around. <laughs> yeah, we'll be taking up a collection after. Although, That'll work. You told me you weren't going to charge me today for signing my baseball card. I ain't, I ain't, getting, I ain't getting a penny of this. <laughs> I appreciate that. I'm just doing it because I love anything that I can do to make someone happy. I love to do it because to me at this point in life, since I got it, it's about giving to someone else and see them smile. Because I've laughed a lot in my lifetime. But I just love to see someone else happy beside myself. Because I know this world wasn't put here for me. It was put here for all of us. And it ain't but one race, it's only a human race, and that's it. But you know what is really amazing to me is that you can take some kids, black, white, Chinese, and Mexican, and they can get along great. But we take some grown men and women and put us together and we can't get along at all. Now what's wrong with that? So the Bible said we must be as little children. That's what he mean by we must be as little children. Yeah. All right, your turn. Your turn. All right. I think you're doing pretty well. Well then on that note, uh, let me ask you this. Uh, what does it mean to you to be, uh, to be uh, inducted into the, the Negro Leagues Hall of Game here tonight? Well, what I look at this is that you are being appreciated for the things that you have done in life. And that is, as they say in Anna Griffin, that's way yonder. Way went way yonder and above. As Bob Kendrick did, he went way yonder and above things to recognize us here. But it is a gratifying feeling, as I was saying before, I'm honeymoon happy and peacock proud to be here. J.R. Richard, ladies and gentlemen. Congratulations and thank you. Absolutely fantastic. Uh, Eddie Murray is our next inductee. Uh, I don't even know if I have to go into his enormous list of credits because it is staggering. Um, Lou Gehrig is considered a paragon of steadiness who played 2,130 games. Eddie Murray played 2,413 plus 600 more designated hitter. Um, he was Rookie of the Year in 77, 21 major league seasons, three gold gloves, three silver sluggers, eight all-star games, averaged 421 years, 24 home runs, and 91 RBIs per season. Averaged. The third player in history to hit 500 homers and 3,000 hits in his career. The other two before him were Henry Aaron and Willie Mays. Yeah. Um, if you remember um, the Orioles in 1983, um, 
he uh, was titanic in that World Series. He was inducted in the Baseball Hall of Fame on the first ballot, and quite right, in 2003. Um, to help us uh, introduce him uh, and recognize Eddie Murray, I'd like to bring up someone from his high school. Um, you may have heard of him. He won 13 gold gloves, 15 all-star appearances, one of the best defensive shortstops of all time. He's also a member of the Hall of Game here at the Negro Leagues and the Hall of Fame and a Missouri sports legend. Will you uh, welcome Ozzie Smith to the stage? Thank you. Good evening. How about that, Bob? <laughs> I have the honor and the pleasure of introducing a childhood friend and a high school teammate. It wasn't hard to see that this young man had that something special. Along with the burning desire to co compete and compete better when the game was on the line. He comes from a line of very talented baseball players, his brothers Venice, Richie, and Charles. Earning the name of Steady Eddie for his consistency as a baseball player, but most people don't know that we also played basketball. He was good, but I was better. <laughs> taught him, I taught him how to win. No, seriously, we've shared some special times together through the years, and we were taught that consistency and hard work would be the thing that would take us to the top of our class. He to the top of his class in 2003, and I in the top of my class in 2002. How about high school teammates making it to the Hall of Fame in consecutive years? Now that's noteworthy. Eddie now stands as one of the few that are considered one of the greatest switch-hitting power hitters the game has ever seen and for good measure, th throw in 3,000 hits. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my pleasure and honor to introduce my good friend, Eddie Murray. Murray. That is us. Right? Uh, yeah, one more time for Ozzie Smith, ladies and gentlemen. Was he better than you? Was he better than you in high school? <laughs> you heard that. Was that hell no? Oh, well, well. <laughs> um, we had fun out there. We, we really never thought about being better than each other. It was not just me and him on uh, the ball clubs and the basketball teams that we played on. It, 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 was, a, it, it was just a thing of where we grew up. You, you saw, I think, the majority of the kids really giving it the best that they could. And uh, I had to be talked into going out and playing on the basketball team. I thought mom wouldn't allow it, but uh, she allowed us to play baseball. And so uh, I'm beating up on some of the boys at gym class. And they said, hey, won't you come out for the basketball team? And I can't tell them, I gotta ask mom. I finally get around there. It was a happy day at the house, and 
<laughs> and, and I kind of snuck it in. And she says, no, I don't mind if you guys play. And I, I, I did have a whole lot of fun playing out there. But, uh, you know, again, you attacked it with all that you had. Now, did you, we were talking earlier today about uh, Chet Brewer and, and his little league. Now, Chet Brewer was an um, outstanding pitcher in the Negro Leagues here in Kansas City. Um, he was living out in L.A., and you played in, a, he, he organized a league for boys out there, or what was it? Oh, Chet Lemon's, uh, Chet Brewer's team was uh, Reggie Smith, Bobby Tolan, Doc Ellis, Don Wilson threw a no-hitter in the big leagues with Houston. You had, uh, Reggie Smith was on that team, Dave Nelson was on that team. All these guys were in the big leagues. And me and my two other brothers, uh, there's a year and three months difference, um, we were the bad boys, and that's how we learned to play. Chet Brewer gave these guys, uh, you know, a place to play, and uh, boy, did they play. And, uh, you know, like I said, from the visuals that we had, it, it, was, it was awesome as a kid. Um, we even took his negotiations and turned his game upside down, Chet Brewer. Well, Chet Brewer used to give us a dime for bringing back all the fall balls. Well, there's one brother, there's either me being the bad boy and the other two brothers are outside running the foul, foul balls down. They can't figure out how these three kids are just raking. We bring in all the money. You know, it was a dime of baseball. But we going, we getting all the balls, we can up the price. So we had come up with a, a way of letting each other know who was hitting. So when the left-hander would come up, the guys, my brothers are out there talking with the kids, they're just talking, all of a sudden you'll see the bad boy would just put his left hand up. <laughs> that means there was a left-handed hitter up, so they're talking to the kid, they're on his right side, but what they would do is just circle him in the conversation. So they're now closer to where he's gonna hit the foul ball, and then we start charging him a quarter of a ball, because we were getting all the balls, but <laughs> we, we had to find a way to, you know, just to get an advantage, That's, that was our house. <laughs> Hey. Right? Thought that was pretty good for some seven, eight-year-olds. <laughs> oh, hell yeah. Now, you've received honors of every uh, sort. Uh, Hall of Fame. Uh, what sets tonight apart of uh, being here? Oh. Well, Kenny, you know what that first word was going to be, didn't you? <laughs> I almost said Gates. No. <laughs> no, this is uh, an awesome place. I got to come here uh, last year, and I think in November, Mike Boddicker's son, uh, uh, what is that dinner called before the wedding again? The rehearsal? rehearsal was held over here in the Negro Hall of Fame. Over, and and it, it was, we got to hear Bob spilled in, which is great job again. No, it really was. And I mean, it was just awesome sitting there. Uh, actually seeing some shoes that I saw Ozzy wearing. They were in one of those little cases, no, no Nike swish on them at all. And, you know, we, we both wore those, but uh, you know, it, it was just a beautiful place. Um, we just had an outstanding time, that, uh, and, uh, and when they called me, it was like, it was no doubt, you know, I was coming back here. Uh, I do know a lot of history about baseball, or, you know, it wasn't just to play it. You had to know where you came from. I mean, you know, you paid attention to who was before you. So who were your heroes growing up? My oldest brother, Charles. Uh-huh. You want to hear the story? Yeah. All right, here we go. My oldest brother, Charles, is in the 12th grade. 
And Phil Pope, who was in uh, Moneyball, he was actually in the movie. He's the guy that signed Chester Lemon and Danny Ford back-to-back -back years out of the same high school, which was Fremont. He coached at the same school with me and Ozzy when we were 11th and 12th graders, but really didn't stay around for our games. But uh, he sees my brother hit a uh, softball in gym class. I said, geez. So he goes and he does something, and so he's rushing back out to see my brother hit again. This is nothing but underhand. Well, my brother loses one again. So he walks over to him. Now, Charles is a, let's say he had a serious mustache, and one thing I didn't want to be as a kid was be like Charles. Charles had hair on his legs, and as a six, seven, eight-year-old, I'm going, ain't no way I want to be hairy like him. Well, Charles did not look like a, a 12, I mean, a, 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 if he asked Charles, he says, hey, son, why don't you come out for the team? Well, Charles says, you got to ask my mother. And he looks at Charles with this full-fledged mustache and says, you've been shaving about six years. He said, what grade are you in? He says, I'm a senior. And he said, I got to ask your mother? And he said, yeah. He calls home and asks my mom. My mom shuts him down. She acts as if we have a four-acre lot or something, you know. Charles Henry got to get home and do chores. Okay, he gets the message. He can't play. Well, she's so mad that her brother comes by and visit, and he goes, what's wrong with you, T? Some man called him, want Charles Henry to play on some team. He got to do chores. Now, I didn't tell you how big our actual lot was, <laughs> but it was not for, for 12, 11 brothers and sisters. That's what I have, seven sisters and four brothers. Well, Charles could have been gone and missing. It's surprising she didn't miss him sometime, but <laughs> well, anyway. He ticks my mom off, he gets on her case so bad that she called the school and said, okay, Charles Henry can play. Well, Charles got on the baseball team. Charles got drafted by Houston. He bought mom and dad a station wagon, and the other four brothers went, yeah, that's what I want to do. <laughs> my, my younger brother replaced Willie McCovey, but everybody that saw us play in L.A. will still say, my oldest brother Charles was the baddest of us all. He could run, he could throw. You know, I hear people talk about, you know, Clemente and Ellis Valentine throwing balls. Charles could pick up a ball from right field and throw it about eight feet high all the way home plate. Um, you hit a pop-up, he'd be between third base and second base. You, you ain't gonna find nobody doing that. Kenny Lofton might have been able to do it, but I, I got some time, I don't know about now. <laughs> But uh, my oldest brother could really play, and that's who really my hero was. That's fantastic. That's awesome. Uh, Mike Flanagan said that you were the best clutch hitter in baseball when you played. <laughs> Ask his wife, no. <laughs> I gotta tell you what that means. Yes, please explain. I lived across the street from Flanagan. Dower stayed on the corner across the street from, uh, from Flanagan this way. So I found out I had hit a home run one night. Didn't think anything about it. Well, it's Mike's turn to pitch again. Still not thinking about it. Go out to play that day, hit another home run. Mike wins again. This went on for about six or seven or eight games in a row. So I'm getting cakes and all this stuff at my day, at my house, I get the ding dong, you know. 
Here she is with a cake. What's her name? Now, my brothers are looking at me. They happen to be visiting. Yeah, she likes you. I said, what are you talking about? And then we end up getting to the bottom of it later. I hit home runs in like seven, eight games in a row when Mike pitched. So she kept making the pies and the cakes for me. <laughs> what else was I supposed to do? <laughs> Seriously, but that's uh, how that got started. Mike was, uh, you know, I, I hit some home runs, but his wife acknowledged that what I was doing. <laughs> that's fantastic. Well, what was the mindset that allowed you to be so clutch all the time? That's what the games were about in the backyard. Uh -huh. That's what the games were about when we went out to play. Uh, you got to have that I want attitude. You know, you don't put it on someone else. Um, you know, I remember we had to go baseball on them on the basketball court. We were playing, and uh, somebody hit a lucky shot. And for some reason, Ozzie got the ball. Didn't, we had a coach. We didn't listen to him. We didn't want to listen to him in basketball. But he takes the ball out, and there I am running, and he throws a full-fledged all the way down to me in the, uh, in the front court. And I take it and I score. And he's over on the side trying to uh, call timeout. It's like, man, we're not listening to you no more. You know, pretty much it was like uh, we weren't a very tall team, but I pretty much thought of our basketball team as a running gun 12. We could really play basketball. So you brought it to every sport. Didn't you? Absolutely. Before we, before we close out here, you had so many unbelievable moments in your career. Is there any particular home run or situation that, you recall, 95, 83, 79? I'll explain the 83 a little bit. Uh -huh. um, I was playing, and uh, as soon as the World Series was over, I got my foot operated on, but I didn't let anybody know. I would just cut my shoes. I had shoes, you cut your shoes open. Uh, I had calcium buildup. I got hit with a pitch, and I was not going to sit out. So. We're playing the series, and I had hurt my wrist. Nobody knew. So um, we go to play, uh, I get a, a hit in game four or something, and Richie Dower comes over to me. And he says, kid, kid, how you feel? How you feel, kid? I said, I feel all right. Next thing I know, he takes off, running around the locker room, just circling it. The kid's guaranteed it. The kid's guaranteed it. What the hell I guaranteed? Well, he's saying I'm guaranteeing the game tomorrow. First time up, I hit a home run. So we're up. I shake everybody's hand, come down, sit on the bench, look down the rest of the bench, and I go, psst. I said, Richie, that's not it. I go up the second time. I hit my name on the scoreboard. I shake everybody's hand, sit down on the bench, turn around. Richie, that's not it. <laughs> so I go up the third time, and everybody, well, they bring in a left-handed pitcher now and they pitch to me. I only have one good swing right-handed. But that's why you don't talk to the media and tell them what's wrong with you. So I went up and I turned from home plate and I go, Richie, since they switched pitchers, I said, I got one good swing. Well, he throws the first pitch up there. I hit it in the upper deck in uh, Philadelphia. Missed the foul pole by two feet maybe. And I go, oh. Well, now I'm resorted to swinging one-handed. Uh, I think, no, I didn't get a base at that time, but that's how I would play. I mean, you know, I only had one swing, right-handed, and you tried to make it count. I was not coming out of the game. Fantastic. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, the immortal.
Eddie Murray. Congratulations. Let's bring Bob Kendrick back out here, talk about uh, tonight and everything. Come on back out, Bob. Everybody's got their phones. Uh, what an, ex an amazing night. Everybody here is such an outstanding individual. Absolutely, absolutely. One more applause for our inductees, please. Eddie Murray, J.R. Richard, Dick Allen, Mudcat Grant, Kenny Lofton. I can't tell you how exciting it is. Uh, it reminds me of, if you don't mind, I'm going to read it. I know you love Buck O'Neill so much. And you, Absolutely. Uh, he's, he's uh, as you always say, looking down upon all this, and yeah. I'm sure quite happy. I found a quote from him that I thought was so appropriate for tonight. Learn your history. It's a wonderful history. So many wonderful things have happened in the last hundred years. We've come so far. We still have a ways to go, but that's your job. You and your children and their children will get there. I know it. Yeah. And uh, yeah. I thought that was astounding. Well, Buck, Buck was the consummate glass half full kind of guy. And I think even when Ken Burns brings him in to tell the story of the Negro Leagues, which he did so beautifully, Buck became an overnight sensation at age 82. And as he always told me, Oz, I've been telling these stories for 40 years and nobody ever listened. And, and Ken Burns gave him a platform in which people listened. But what Ken also did was said, Buck, I wasn't there. You tell it the way you remember it. And, and so, and, but I think that was the whole outlook that he had on life, you know, where others saw the, the, the bus rides being, you know, laborious and, and difficult. Buck said, I'm out and I'm seeing the country. Yeah, he, he relished in that. And so, but that was the, that's why we all kind of fell in love with Buck. We fell in love with Buck, and I say this all the time, we, the, more, the more majority of us never saw him play. We fell in love with the Buck O'Neill who told us about the legends of the Negro Leagues, the heroes of this game, and the Buck O'Neill who so beautifully and vividly demonstrated to all of us that you can indeed get further in this life with love than you can with hate. And, and I think, and, and he lived that out. And what we do across the street at the museum, we introduce kids to a chapter of American history that they've been removed from, segregation very difficult for them to even comprehend what a segregated society was like. As a matter of fact, kids come into the museum and they summarize segregation quite simply. That was dumb. And they're absolutely right. See, J.R. touched on it a little bit. There is so much that we can learn from our children. Yeah, we spend so much time trying to teach and tell them. We sometimes need to kind of look and, and listen to them because they don't see color, they just see people. And I think that was Buck's message all the time, and he lived it. That's fantastic. Uh, should we bring everybody back on stage one more time? I, I think we absolutely should. And we, before we do that, I want to thank our friends again at High V for their continued support. Five years running of presenting sponsor of this event. And I also want to say, please mark on your calendar, Saturday, August 4th, when High V and the Negro League Baseball Museum brings you the Heart of America Hot Dog Festival. Some 10,000 people, we got a great lineup. I, I, I can't tell you exactly who, but I'm gonna say word up. I, but you didn't hear that from me. 
come into Kansas City to perform. Really? Oh yeah, SOS band. I'll save the rest for the big announcement when we have the announcement coming up here in about a week or so. But thank you, Hy-V, for your continued support and the vision that you have for supporting our great museum. And so now, if you would, please give one more last resounding applause to our Hall of Game recipients. Please welcome Eddie Murray, Eddie Murray. J.R. Richard, Kenny Lofton, and, and Mr. Allen will be right back. Thank you, Ozzie Smith. Dick Allen. Yeah, right. Thank you, Amos Otis. Thanks to my friend Jerry Manuel and all the guys who are in this weekend. Man, I appreciate you all being here. And thanks to all of you for your continued support of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Please drive home safely, and we'll see you at the next great event. Thank you. Thank you.